The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I want to welcome you to this show, Rabbi Daniel Lappin on the Blaze. And this is actually episode two. And I very much hope you've had an opportunity to hear episode one. And if not, you'll still have an opportunity to do so, because I think that what we're going to be discussing now uh, stands on its own. But nonetheless, uh, the, uh, the first one does fill in some important areas. What we spoke about then was the, the idea that uh, there's one really gigantic, fundamental, existential question that if you knew how anybody feels about this question, you would be able to pretty much predict where they stand on almost every hot-button topic of the day. And that question was, and it's, it's, it's disturbingly simple, how did human beings arrive on this planet? And uh, there are a number of people who are absolutely sure that they know the answer. Some of those people, me included, believe and beyond believe that uh, the good Lord created us in his image and put us here. And by virtue of the fact that we're touched by the finger of God, that makes us entirely different from every other life form on the planet. And so, for instance, if uh, I was trying to understand uh, why human beings tell jokes, um, I would immediately say to myself, well, uh, we, we, we tell jokes about certain things. Maybe the things we tell jokes about could help us understand why this characteristic is found in the human species. Uh, we tell jokes about uh, God, right? And those are jokes like, um, you know, Mr. Jones arrived in heaven and he went up to the pearly gates, and you know how that one continues in its millions of variations. Or how about the one about the... Uh, the rabbi, the priest, and the pastor who walked up to the bar, and you know that one. But these always hinge on the fact that, that there's a religious dimension, and they hinge on the fact that somehow or another uh, distorting an aspect of our relationship with God is just funny. The second uh, part of uh, the second kind of jokes uh, are bathroom jokes, potty jokes where uh, and admittedly these tend to appeal to nine-year-old little boys but uh, but you can even find nine-year-old boys in 45-year-old men so uh, you you know people chuckle at at the bathroom joke and again uh, we're we're obviously uh, laughing with a semi-embarrassment there and then finally, the last main category of jokes are, um, are uh, jokes having to do with sex. And uh, the, the vulgarity there, again, is to try and, in, on some level, demystify uh, the humor, demystify the topic that you really are joking about. Well, that's how I would look at it. I'd say, okay, there's something common about all these things. Uh, I, I'm uncomfortable about certain biological functions. 
uh, and I'm uneasy about my relationship with God, all right, this tells me some very interesting things about human beings. But uh, there is another group of people who are equally sure of the answer to how human beings arrived on this planet. And uh, these people say, well, it's very simple. By a very lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into violinists and bus drivers. And we say, well, okay, fine. Now, what is your understanding of humor and jokes? And they will immediately start looking for a biological explanation. And so this is one of the main differences between people who decide to live their lives as if we were created by God himself and put here, and those people who decide to live their lives as if we are here in the same way that mosquitoes and baboons are here. And I showed you last week the differences, the tremendous differences in how you would tend to live your life. The various really important decisions you'd make quite differently depending on how that, uh, how that goes. Well, we have to move on from there today, and we need to examine the idea of spiritual and physical. What are those two words? What do they really mean? The reason I'm so uh, insistent on discussing this with you early in this podcast, before we get into anything else, is because, as I've told you before, I am solemnly dedicated to my mission of revealing for you how the world really works. Well, the only way you can understand how the world really works is if you use both your eyes and both your ears. If you use only one eye, you don't get a three-dimensional uh, picture. If you use only one ear, then you're only hearing the story from one side. It's, it's like a stereo system playing a beautiful piece of music while the right channel is broken. You're not getting the full effect. Well, the, the two channels, that when I speak of life, right and left in audio or uh, left eye and right eye in visual, the two channels in trying to understand how the world really works are spiritual and physical. And only by understanding them both is the world going to make sense and are you going to be equipped with the right tools to make the right decisions to make the very most of your life. Well, just think for a moment how many things in our life, the things that bring us joy, the things that in which we find meaning are things that we depend on the spiritual for. Let me give you an idea of what I mean, and then I will explore fully with you uh, the, um, the question of what exactly is physical and what exactly is spiritual. But uh, if you think for a moment about love, enjoying the feeling of being loved by other people, enjoy the feeling of loving somebody else or some other people, uh, very, very powerful. Love is a spiritual sense. It is. It's spiritual. And so what is physical and what is spiritual? 
Let me start off with uh, a really basic definition, and uh, it's not going to work for us indefinitely, but it will certainly take us through the next part of this podcast uh, before we have to delve into it a little more deeply. I ask you to imagine, if you would, my pet baboon. No, you know what? Make it a chimpanzee. I'd rather, I'd rather have a chimpanzee. Okay. Uh, my chimp lives with me, and there are certain things that I do that my chimp really understands and gets. I can see the light of comprehension in his eyes. But there are other things that he looks at me with a dull, glazed look. He, he hasn't the faintest clue of what's going on. I come home from work, and um, the first thing that happens is my wife says, you, you look hot. How about a nice cool drink? And she brings me a glass of my favorite beverage, and there are droplets of condensation coalescing on the side of this glass. It looks inviting. It looks wonderful. And I raise the glass to my lips, and I begin draining it. At that point, my chimpanzee knows exactly what I'm doing, because many is the time that he, too, has enjoyed a refreshing drink of cold water. Then I sit down in my armchair, and my baboon and my chimpanzee, or pardon me, my chimpanzee is still with me. He's, he's got it. Uh, sitting down makes sense. He, in fact, he's expecting me any moment to start picking fleas off me. But uh, what I really do now is I pick up a newspaper and hold it motionless in front of my face. And once again, spying on my chimpanzee through a teensy little hole I cut in the paper, I see that baffled look creep over his simian features. He doesn't know what's going on. And he's sitting there. He's waiting. He's waiting for me to do something that makes sense to him. Well, fortunately, he doesn't have to wait too long because pretty soon I get up and I go to the dining room table. My wife has called us for dinner. And we sit down for dinner. And uh, the, the chimpanzee smells the delicious aroma of food emanating from the table. And he lopes along into the dining room with us to watch this part of the process. We sit down. And we're all looking at the food, and the chimpanzee smiles to himself. And I know he's thinking, yep, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I enjoy my dinner as well, and I love it when they feed me. And then, inexplicably, we all start muttering together. We're saying a grace before the meal. We're saying a blessing on the food we're about to eat. And my chimpanzee just loses it again. He doesn't have a clue what on earth has been going on. He hasn't got the faintest idea. And uh, he waits, and it's only a few minutes before we tuck into that food, and the chimpanzee is happy once again. He's got it. All of this makes plenty sense, and he's delighted because we're doing something that he really understands. How's about when um, we then go out to the shopping mall. The chimpanzee comes along for the ride, and he's always happy to go on an outing, 
But uh, then we walk into a store, and I speak to the store owner about the merits of one camera over another camera. And the chimpanzee tilts his head on the side with a quizzical look on his face. He doesn't know what's going on. Here's another chimpanzee. I'm not fighting with him. I'm not pulling fleas out of his fur. What are we doing? We're just standing and our mouths are moving. The chimpanzee doesn't have a clue. And so the general definition here is that anything that my pet chimpanzee does not understand is spiritual behavior. Anything that my chimpanzee gets and understands perfectly, why that is physical. It's as simple as that. And so we can readily understand whether something is spiritual or physical just by asking ourselves, would Rabbi Daniel Lappin's pet chimpanzee understand what you're doing? Yes, then you're doing something physical. No, you're doing something spiritual. It's as simple as that. Now, what happens if we try and delve just a little more deeply? Well, let me let you in on what we'll discuss more fully a little later, and that is that spiritual is anything which cannot be measured in a laboratory. Take music, for instance. Now, going back to our chimpanzee definition, if I go back to my armchair after we finished dinner and we went shopping and we came home from shopping, we've done all that, and I sit down in the armchair and I turn on the stereo and I close my eyes and I am listening to a beautiful piece of symphonic music and I listen without moving for nearly 40 minutes. The chimpanzee is going crazy, has no idea what I'm doing. But there we go again, you see. Because while you can measure noise in a laboratory, I can measure how loud noise is. I have plenty of instruments for that. I can even do a spectrum analysis and find out the frequencies of the various sounds in the music. But that is all that I can do. You see, there is a major limitation that a laboratory has when it comes to music a devastating handicap. There's something about music that happens inside the heart, mind, and soul of a human being which no instrument exists for purposes of comprehending, measuring, or replicating. That big handicap, what the lab cannot do, I'm going to tell you about in just a moment as soon as we return. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Well, and the other thing is if I haven't expelled all my energy, if I get angry and I have all this pent-up frustration, I work. I clean. I clean. I fix. I mow the lawn. Clean this and spawn out of the carpet. So if I have energy, energy left, I just clean. Please don't call my mother-in-law. Don't worry, I got the Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everyone. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, we're on the Blaze. And thank you again so much for being with us. 
as we continue exploring how the world really works. We were talking about whether or not music is spiritual. And uh, I spoke about the fact that if I were to play a piece of music, I have instruments in the laboratory that can easily tell you how loud the music is, it can easily tell you what the frequency makeup is, whether they're bass tones or treble tones. and it, This can all be analyzed. But if I looked at the results of the instruments and if I looked at the results of the tests I made, and I've never heard this piece of music, I'm just looking at the instruments, there is no way at all that I can tell whether I'm listening to noise or music. That's amazing if you think about it. I, there is no instrument at all that'll tell me if I'm listening to noise or if that sound is noise or music. If somebody told me, well, you can count on it. It is music. Okay, fine. Uh, there is no instrument that'll tell me if it's happy music or sad music. There is no instrument at all that'll tell me whether this is the kind of music that can make men ready to march off to war, or this is the kind of music that makes people want to tap their feet and get up and dance. No instrument at all. And so noise is physical. It's merely the vibration of air molecules, and vibrating air molecules strike your eardrum creating a neurophysiological response that your brain registers as noise or sound. But something amazing happens when the sound is arranged in such a way so as to produce music. And the term music only makes sense if you're talking about the ability of a human being to distinguish it. As far as we know, my pet chimpanzee gets no pleasure whatsoever out of listening to music. Doesn't get it. To him, noise and music are exactly the same thing. But for human beings, there is a difference. And so that would be something that is very spiritual. So if it can be measured in a lab, physical. If it cannot be measured in a lab, spiritual. So we've got to try and understand now a little bit more about the, and the, the origin of physical and spiritual and the idea that our comprehension of life, our comprehension of how the world really works, depends on us understanding the spiritual just as much as we understand the physical. It depends on us realizing that just as there are physical necessities that we have in order to survive air, that's right, no oxygen, no life. Food, water, those are the basic physical needs of life, and we all understand them. Deprive ourselves, or if somebody deprives you of food and water, it, you get miserable pretty quick. And then you find yourself getting weak, and eventually, if relief is not offered, death is what follows. We do have physical needs, and everyone understands them. But here is the news for right now, and that is that we also have equally vital spiritual needs.
Now that comes as a surprise, doesn't it, to many people? Because you would have thought, well, you know, we can we can manage without any physical, uh, without any spiritual supplies. We can be capable of, of running our lives even if we don't have anything spiritual in them. Not really so simple. Not at all so simple. And we really do have spiritual needs. One of them is companionship and connection with other human beings. And that's why it is that uh, when computer games first came out years ago, uh, before the Internet was the phenomenon that it is today, parents used to go out and buy these various computer games for their children. And they used to be pretty expensive. In fact, computers were pretty expensive within, with, with, a, with very limited capability compared to anything we know today. Uh, those early computers that sat on your desk, and I'm talking about uh, 19, uh, 1983, 1984, 1985, that period, uh, the computer sat on your desk. It was big, it was bulky, it was expensive, and it didn't contain even a fraction of the computing power of your telephone, of your cell phone. That's right. But people got them. We were excited by them. And people bought games, computer games for their children. You spend a lot of money. And the child would play, and the computer game was, it was remarkable. Now, it didn't have the amazing graphics you see today, but still, it was fascinating. But nonetheless, something that everyone discovered very quickly was that if the choice was playing with a very sophisticated computer and uh, competing against the computer on a, on a wonderful game, and the choice was doing that or going outside to play with a little kid living next door and kick a ball down the street together, people discovered that their children quickly abandoned all that expensive computers and the uh, sophisticated games. They quickly abandoned them if the alternative was a real live kid to play with. And this really helped to cement, when I saw this, cement in my mind this very fundamental need built into us to connect with other human beings. And so along came the Internet with its promise of connecting human beings, and obviously it set forth a torrent of human creativity, the likes of which hadn't been seen for several decades. And as a matter of fact, if you think about the times in relatively modern human history when human creativity was unleashed and economic power developed and wealth poured out lavishly from the human mind, these times were nearly always when technological advances made it easier, cheaper, more efficient for human beings to connect with one another. And this is why it is that uh, there was an explosion of wealth creation when television found its way into every home, talking about the, the 1950s. There was an explosion of economic creativity when the radio found its way into people's homes. Amazing, because once again, it let us connect. 
and none of that compared to the economic creativity that was unleashed when Alexander Graham Bell created, invented the telephone. And even that didn't compare to one of the most dramatic technological advances of all time and one which produced an economic backlash that was unprecedented in human history up to that point. Do you know what it was? It was the telegraph in May, 19, uh, May 1848. Tom, uh, uh, Samuel Morse conveyed a message from Walt Baltimore to Washington, D.C., that stretch where he had laid a copper wire, and he was able to send a message, a remarkable message. It was a message that he chose from the book of, uh, of, uh, of Numbers in the Bible, uh, What Hath God Wrought? Because he was a devout Christian, Samuel Morse, and he realized that he was God's instrument in bringing into the world this incredible boon. An incredible boon it really was, because up until May 1848, the very fastest way for human beings to convey information was by means of a man on the back of a horse. And so, for instance, if people in Philadelphia or Baltimore wanted to know how the wheat harvest was doing in the Midwest, uh, let's imagine a guy was a baker and he needed to know, you know, how much wheat should he prepare to buy and he could buy it depending on how much capital he had available, but that would depend on the price of wheat. That would depend on how big and successful the wheat harvest was. He'd have to send somebody on a horse, and the person would have to ride somewhere maybe near to Chicago where information was gathered on the harvest, and then he'd have to ride back again. This was slow, arduous, and difficult. And so uh, what, what was the only solution? Well, what happened is that Samuel Morse came up with the telegraph and information could be conveyed instantaneously, immediately. How amazing is that? Extraordinary. And within a very short space of time, the country was crisscrossed with telegraph wires. Very shortly after that, they laid wires under the oceans. It didn't matter how much it cost because they knew they would recoup the capital and a... And, and, and a wonderful profit on top of it, all the telegraph and cable companies did because they knew that the human desire to connect was so powerful and so strong that people would pay whatever it cost in order to communicate with one another almost instantaneously. And that was the success story of the telegraph, followed by the telephone, followed by radio, followed by television, followed by the Internet. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Because the desire for human beings to connect is a very powerful spiritual instinct. It's a spiritual need. Does my chimpanzee have any understanding whatsoever of uh, the need for, spiritual, for, for, for human connection? No. He connects at certain times of the year with a female chimpanzee when I allow him to. But uh, that's as far as his understanding goes. The idea that it is possible to sit companionably with another chimpanzee and move your mouth and utter strange, unintelligible sounds 
and that this is a very satisfactory way of spending an hour or two or three or four. No, my chimpanzee doesn't get that at all. And it's even more complicated for him if I were to uh, engage in silent companionship. You know, uh, one of the uh, requirements of mourning in Judaism is that for the first week after losing somebody, uh, a, a person, a man or a woman, stays home for an entire week. You don't go to work, uh, and you, you stay at home. What do you do? Well, uh, you share the time with your siblings. And this, uh, by the way, is, um, is one of the reasons. And I don't think people who have only one child think of this. They're people who choose. I mean, I'm not talking about uh, tragic countries where government edict allows only one child. But I'm talking about people who choose. There was a period where people believed that the major problem facing the planet is overpopulation. Right. And uh, zero population growth became the cry. So sophisticated and educated people, I'm not saying smart or wise, but I'm saying sophisticated or educated, and sophisticated and educated doesn't necessarily mean wise at all because they were not wise, uh, depressingly unwise. They, um, they made it a, uh, a case of social elitism. They used to boast to, to, to one another, oh, we're, you know, we're only having one child. It's the responsible thing to do uh, in the world as it is today. And uh, you don't get that much of it anymore today, but you still get some of it. And I used to tell people at the time, I hate to be morbid about this, but do you realize that you are leaving your single only one child, not only uh, the absence of that wonderful companion in life, namely a sibling, but you're leaving them to mourn your departure alone. And that's painful. And uh, I have to tell you that, uh, and, and I know this is, is bizarre, but there's something about what happened when I mourned uh, first my father and then my mother and uh, spent that week indoors with my siblings. We call it sitting shiva, and I can tell you a little bit more about what that's about. But what happened when I mourned my father and when I mourned my mother? Let me tell you that in just a moment, as soon as we get back here on Rabbi Daniel Lappin on the Blaze. And uh, I want you to also have my website because there are additional resources there that I'd like you to have access to if you need them. And that is youneedarabbi.com. Got it? www.youneedarabbi.com. And... Um, uh, that's an easy one to remember, isn't it? You need a rabbi.com. Uh, try it out, and that way, uh, apart from anything else, we'll be able to stay in touch because you can subscribe there to my weekly email called Thought Tools. And um, let, us, uh, let us then pick up in a moment on what happened when I found myself in mourning for my parents. Tell you about that in just a moment. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't miss Pat and Stu. The accord will keep Iran from producing enough material for a nuclear weapon. Uh-huh. Wink, wink. 
for at least 10 years and impose new provisions for inspections of Iranian facilities. Listen, it doesn't say I was reading here the same thing. I didn't see uh uh-huh, wink, wink. (laughs) No, I didn't. It's kind of implied. It's implied I'm reading between the lines. Yeah, reading between the lines a little bit. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, hello, everybody. I am your rabbi, and as you know, I always remind you that my job is revealing how the world really works. And the only way we can do that is by making sure that we're using all our senses. Um, You know, it wouldn't make much sense at all if uh, somebody wanted to uh, drive uh, without using his ears at all. As a matter of fact, one of the concerns these days is the number of people driving with uh, earbuds stuck in their ears means they're not going to hear horns going. They're not going to get any of the um, audio clues that help keep you alert to your environment while you're driving. And uh, the, same, the same is true of, uh, of, of, of a pilot who said, well, uh, he's not going to use his altimeter. He's just interested in if there are any other planes at his level and he's only going to look at anything at his altitude. He's not concerned with anything above or below. It doesn't make sense. And so it is. People who go through life uh, concerned and focused only on the material, only on the physical, are depriving themselves of a valuable source of information that helps you make the right decisions. Because, I mean, let's face it, we're all confronted with challenges, right, every single day. And you don't have a lot of control over what the challenges are. Uh, They come at you, things happen, decisions have to be made, you have to react. It's something that a child says to you, it's something that a friend says to you, it's something that a co-worker or a supervisor, somebody says something to you, you've got to react. You've got to come up with something, you've you've got to have an idea. And if you're handicapped in how you respond because of your uh, limited outlook and because you're perceiving only one dimension instead of the two dimensions of reality, one dimension physical second dimension spiritual, makes it harder for you to react effectively. And so in the choices that we make, and we all make choices every single day, constantly, many times a day, in those choices, the kinds of things that we decide to do are enormously impacted by how smart we are in terms of perceiving our environment the way it really is. And so that's why it is that we're spending a little bit of time familiarizing ourselves with getting the hang of uh, spiritual understanding what the spirit is and how exactly it does work. Well, uh, the, 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 the principle that we've looked at already is that in exactly the same way that the good Lord created us with certain physical needs, namely air, food, water, shelter, maintenance of body temperature, and so on, and uh, the, in the same way, he's also given us certain spiritual needs. And uh, one of them is the need for human connectivity. I say it's spiritual because uh, if my pet chimpanzee watches you and me sitting one evening on the porch in our rocking chairs and uh, just our mouths move and, and our heads nod at each other, my poor chimp watches this, and it goes on for two hours, and he's quite incapable of grasping what on earth are we doing? Why, why are we doing this? But to us, it's deeply satisfying. As a matter of fact, human connectivity is, fu- is much more fundamental than just deeply satisfying. 
uh, I will tell you. And, and again, I, I don't want to constantly be apologizing for quoting from Scripture, which is ridiculous. If, if I do that, I've yielded to the popular culture. I've yielded to the cowardice of political correctness, which I'm not going to do. But I am aware that I have listeners, and I always have had listeners, who are not uh, biblically interested at all. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, so for, for those of you, when I do quote from the Bible, uh, it's, it's useful anyways, just because don't forget that we really do live in the first time um, in, in a thousand years of Western civilization uh, that there are so many people who are so illiterate about the Bible. So uh, it doesn't hurt to know something about the book that has had more influence on Western civilization literally than any other book you can think of. It's worth knowing something about the book that has had more copies printed than any other book at all. Any other book, and uh, that, that includes every possible genre of, uh, of, of publication you can imagine. No book has ever had as many copies printed of it as the Bible. No book has been in print so consistently for so long. There isn't. So no harm in knowing something about this remarkable, mysterious, and majestic volume, particularly uh, chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 18, where there is a verse in which the Lord says, uh, and he, do, he, he doesn't say it, he just, it's a statement. It's not saying it to Adam. He's saying it about Adam. And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, you would have expected that the very next verse would have been, oh, well, God put Adam into this deep slumber and he cut him up and removed the uh, side of him that was going to be, you know, that's what you thought would happen. And the next thing is Adam would wake up and meet this beguiling creature standing in front of him. And uh, in the very first palindrome of history, he'd probably say something like, Madam, I'm Adam. And uh, that isn't at all what happens. As a matter of fact, after verse 2, chapter 2 verse 18 not good for man to be alone uh, what really happens is that uh, God goes ahead and starts uh, bringing animals by Adam and uh, Adam goes through a process of naming all the creatures you would have thought that Adam would probably have said to God something like you know Lord can we stop the zoological parade and can we bring on the dame uh, you said there's going to be a woman let's see her already no not at all and the reason for that is because the uh, ancient Jewish wisdom lays out that this statement is not just a, an account of something that happened thousands of years ago when God and Adam were in the Garden of Eden alone and there was no Eve yet. No, it's a, a, a recounting of that to be sure, but it's so much more than that. It is a divine decree for all time and all places. It's not good for man to be alone. In other words... You, me, our friends, everybody we know, none of us do well in isolation from other human beings. It's, um, it's, it's something we really just need to, to understand. Uh, mentally, we really do need other people. You know, solitary confinement, that's a torture. It's not a reward for busy people. It's a torture. Um, nobody goes nuts. Nobody suffers mental breakdown from being around too many people. But solitary confinement, solitary confinement does indeed create the possibility of severe mental breakdown. So this need we have for human beings 
Yes, it's spiritual, but it's the spiritual need we have with physical consequences, I must tell you. Uh, the, the fact is that uh, people alone, and this applies more to men than to women, somehow or another, women alone do better than men alone. Women alone, they, they're just better at connecting with other women and talking with other women. More often than not, men alone begin deteriorating, and they deteriorate physically. Uh, you you can see you can see you know sadly it's it's very often older men who may have been widowed, and uh, and don't maybe they don't have family connections they don't have friends whatever it is you see them deteriorate before your very eyes, you know first of all you see they don't change their clothes and their hygiene goes and the doctor visits stop happening, and they literally fall apart very very quickly, and so. Uh, I, I, again, I'm not saying that uh, the minute you're isolated, you'll stop brushing your teeth and uh, stop changing your clothes. No, it's not that. But over a period of time, let, let me put it this way, it's hard to confront how much of our maintenance, our personal maintenance, is the result of our being with other people. How much of it is the fact that we're going to be seen by other people, we're going to be interacting with other people. And, you know, for largely for that reason. And again, a certain amount of human self-discipline eventually should get built into us, so it shouldn't matter that much. But in reality, uh, you know you know very well that if you are at home one day and you know you're not going out and nobody's coming by and you're going to be all by yourself all day, I mean, do you really get dressed with exactly the same care that you do when you're on your way to a meeting or to uh, get together socially with a group of friends? No, of course not. And so uh, our, our entire physical welfare, even to that extent, is contingent on the extent to which we are connected with other human beings and with other people. Now, it's not only talking, I must tell you. Uh, my late dad told me of uh, an incident where his teacher, who was his uncle, who actually, as a much older man, turned out to be my teacher as well, um, so I was I was very young still. I was in my early teens, and uh, I was uh, sent away to study uh, in the academy that was being headed by my father's uncle. Obviously, all the, the students there were in their early to mid to late twenties. Um, I was I was, but it, as 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 a great nephew of the great man, I was tolerated uh, for all my uh, juvenile immaturity. But uh, I, in, in, in spite of my youth, I did gather a lot. I retained a lot. I remembered a lot. And, uh, and my father told me of, of an instance where uh, a close friend, another great rabbi of his uncle, um, lost his wife, and he was in mourning. And uh, when you're in mourning, you stay home and you, you receive visitors. And I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. And uh, my... Uh, my great uncle, together with my father, went over to visit this individual. And to my father's astonishment, uh, my his uncle, my great uncle, walked into the house of mourning, took a seat nearby where the where his friend, mourning his wife, was sitting. Sat there for fifteen minutes. Not a word was exchanged by either man, and then my great uncle got up walked out, followed by my father, and went back. Extraordinary. Fifteen minutes of silence between two old friends. 
unbelievably companionable. Not only did nothing need to be said, nothing could be said. What wasn't said was ever so much more profound than anything that could have been said. And I ask you to just imagine what would my chimpanzee have thought of that encounter would have made no sense to him at all. And uh, and that is really exactly, I think, what what we're talking about here, which is that the need for human companionship and the uh, the engagement in human companionship is a profoundly spiritual need that we all have. I'll go further than that, and I will say that I don't think that there is perhaps even one great moment in your life, a moment of joyful achievement, a, a moment of happiness, a moment of accomplishment, uh, a moment of, of creativity that you did not collaborate on with at least one other human being. The idea of the uh, lonely artist isolated in his attic studio turning out masterpieces, I don't believe it. You know, I think there are times when, when you work, you need to work in quiet. There, there are times when I'm writing, I need to write in, in, in quiet, sure. But you can't possibly be creative if it's day after day, week after week, month after month of solitary isolation and, uh, and remove from other human beings. Just not likely. And so whatever your moments are, moments you think back of great joy and happiness, moments of pride and achievement, moments of accomplishment, and you'll realize it, it might have been a spouse, it might have been a parent, it might have been a beloved teacher, might have been a colleague, a collaborator. But whatever it is, whatever it is that you have achieved of significance in your life has always been with the participation of at least one other human being. And the most profound act of creativity of which we're all capable the, the great gift that our Creator gave us, the ability to actually create another human being. Literally limitless creativity because you have no idea what that human being is capable of. And so your, this, this exciting moment of bringing into being another human being, wow, even that or especially that, only with one other person. You can't possibly do it by yourself. And the lesson is driven home to us. Little of real meaning can be accomplished if you are all alone and all isolated. When we come back, I said I would tell you about uh, the, the um, process of mourning that is rooted in the Bible and uh, how that is practiced. Now, I want to tell you that because uh, I think many of you will find it useful if, if you ever, uh, heaven forbid, have to go through a, a period of mourning and that painful loss of somebody special and somebody close. Um, it is possible that what I have to share with you coming back might be very useful indeed. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. What's the latest Clinton misstep? And I'm starting to think we should stop calling them missteps because it's just, this is who she is. This idea that there's all this depth strategy and diplomacy and all this sort of stuff going on with the Clintons and they have this political touch and the, they can get away with all this stuff and they're so savvy and no, no, no. Propped up, propped up. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network.
Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you of how the world really works. And uh, one of the ways that we know it works is that the spiritual is just as important as the physical. And one of the uh, things that the Bible provides uh, enormously helpful input on is how to deal with the most challenging dilemma of life, which is death. How do you deal with that? And the, the problem, obviously, is, is not so much for the deceased, for uh, the, the, the dying person is really viewed as, uh, well, look at it this way. This is a uh, metaphor from ancient Jewish wisdom uh, where, there, uh, where there is a, a child in, in utero and uh, the child's there and the months go by and the child says to him, oh, this is really terrific. And then uh, he, he gets word that, well, guess what? This all comes to an end. After nine months, that's it. You see this nice warm environment where you don't have to worry about staying warm. You know, this nice environment where you don't have to worry about being hungry because food just comes at you all the time. You know, this, this lovely environment where you're sheltered and protected from the bumps and knocks of life. Well, guess what? All that's coming to an end. Nine months' time, it's all over. You're gone. It's out of here. And the child said, well, what happens to me then? Oh, can't tell you about that. You're going to have to wait and find out. And this child goes into the, this, this state of, of, of concern and, uh, and, and worry about what's happening at the end of the nine months. It's all going to be over. And, of course, everything he was told is absolutely true. But what arrives is something so entirely different, um, so utterly incomprehensible to a child in utero and that nonetheless there it is it, it happens and so in exactly the same way uh, we we can easily find ourselves overcome by dread at you know what happens when when all this comes to an end and the answer is that uh, a, a different and better reality opens up one which is utterly incomprehensible to us now and so uh, we don't engage in, 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 in the folly of pretending that uh, we, we know what awaits us there and, uh, and that there are going to be 70 virgins in the world. We don't, we don't engage in that sort of stuff. Um, it's foolish because we cannot comprehend it any more than a child in utero can comprehend what living a full life on, on this earth can possibly be like. But uh, the fact is, though, that when somebody moves on to the next phase of life, to those left behind, it is painful, it is traumatic, it, is, uh, it, can, it, it upends your entire world. And uh, fortunately, ancient Jewish wisdom through the Bible does provide uh, very important guidance on that that I think people of, of, of every background uh, could find useful. Um, let me start off by acknowledging that the the process is stressful, right? We 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 all recognize that. Um, coping with with death of somebody close to you is very very stressful. And uh, what was very interesting is that back in the seventies, a smart psychologist by the name of Holmes uh, came up with a stress scale. It was a very clever idea. Uh, he figured out a way of assigning a value, a number, 
to every or to many life experiences, and the number indicated just how uh, stressful the experience was. And then his, his goal was to try and figure out, you know, what is the stress number that people can usually cope with comfortably uh, in, a, in a normal life? And uh, he said, you know, and he said, well, you've got to figure it out. If, if several events are happening whose stress totals up to a higher figure than is good for you, you should, you should try and back off. So, in other words, just to give you an idea, um, a moving house is, is a very stressful thing, and I'll tell you the number in a moment. Um, losing a job or changing jobs. Losing a job is very stressful, but even changing a job is stressful. And so uh, Dr. Holmes would say to you, look, uh, if you know that in the next few months you're going to be changing jobs and you're going to be moving, try to not do those at the same time. Yeah, don't do them in the same week because all you're doing is uh, multiplying the stresses on yourself. Uh, why don't you get the job change sorted out and then do the move or maybe the other way around? That's what he said. And so uh, what do you think is the highest stress item? The absolute highest. Yes, you're right. It's losing somebody. It's obviously the death of somebody close. But who? Uh, would you say um, a parent or a spouse? That's right. You know the answer. Losing a spouse is the highest. And he accords that a value of 100. Uh, by contrast, losing a parent is uh, a 65. Okay, so it's up there. So the way he measured it, and, and I, I think he's probably fairly close. It, it just intuitively makes sense to me, and I, I think probably will to you too, that losing a parent is, um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's terribly, terribly painful, terribly stressful, but it's kind of expected. It's, it's what happens in life, you know. So for that to be 65% of losing a spouse, that's probably about right. Um, how about, uh, heaven forbid, losing a child? That's probably way up there. I don't know the, the number for that. And I, I think the, uh, the reason is, fortunately, it happens rarely enough that he had trouble getting numbers on that. But, uh, yeah, loss of a child would be right up there. So death of a, uh, a spouse, way up there, 100. Uh, next item, divorce. Divorce is high. Divorce is 75, right up there. 75% of the stress of losing a spouse is a divorce, which makes sense, right? Because it is losing a spouse. By the way, uh, when he measures it for young people, the parents getting divorced is a 90. Isn't that interesting? He does two scales, one for adults, one for young people. And uh, lose, um, for pa parents, div parents divorcing is, whoa, way up there. Death of a parent is 100. Uh, an unplanned pregnancy and an abortion is also a hundred, and de and divorce of parents is a ninety. Very very interesting. So, uh, what is um, what is the reason I mention this? Well, uh, loss of somebody. Loss. Let's look at loss of a parent as being um, a, a, you know a more common thing that 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 most people go through. Uh, so, loss of a parent sixty five. A wedding, getting married, 55. Very close. So losing a parent or getting married impose roughly the same stress on a person. Now, I'm no, I'm no doctor, but even I know that it's not effort, and I'll come back to stress, but I'm looking at effort now. It's not effort 
in itself that causes heart damage and uh, and and uh, collapse and all kinds of problems it's not if if somebody is is lifting a heavy load it's that if somebody has not done anything like that for a long time it's somebody who spends a lot of time sitting behind a desk and then runs a uh, a very hard pushing quarter of a mile sprint or something um, or runs for a bus sometimes it's change it's sudden change that causes stress on the human body, both physical and spiritual. And, um, and so that's one of the reasons that, you know, you warm up before, before doing heavy exercise. You warm up so you don't go immediately transitioning from uh, sitting or, or relaxing into extremely energetic, uh, high-pressured physical exertion. That just can't be good for you. And so similarly, the idea is that... Um, Moving in and out of stress situations with no opportunity to get settled and accustomed to it, that is problematic. And so guess what? Uh, we Jews spend a week celebrating a wedding. So when my daughter got married, she got married on a Tuesday evening. And uh, Wednesday evening, we had another party. We had a big party on Tuesday evening friends and relatives. Wednesday evening, we had another party, much smaller, about uh, there might have been 300 people at the wedding on Tuesday night. On Wednesday night, there were about 30 people. And then Thursday night, there was a, another party, and that might have been you know, 15 uh, relatives from both sides. And then uh, Friday night, and Saturday night, and Sunday night, and then Monday night, uh, sometimes it's a group of friends, sometimes it's work, uh, it was a group of co-workers, uh, who throw another party. But the idea is that every night for a week is another party uh, going on. Why? Because the wedding goes on for seven days. Oh, really? Where does that come from? Well, that comes from the uh, uh, chapter, tw uh, chapter um, 29 in Genesis, verse 27. And uh, the story there is um, Jacob as a young man shows up at his father-in-law's house, he's escaped the wrath of his brother Esau, uh, who was upset at having earlier sold him the blessing, and turned out that Jacob stuck to the deal. And Jacob had to run away. He fled to his uh, uncle Laban's house. Laban was a scoundrel, all-round bad guy. And uh, what happens is that Jacob um, falls in love with uh, the younger daughter, Rachel. He wants to marry her. Father uh, Laban says, sure, you know, just work for me for seven years and uh, you can marry her. He does that. The seven years fly by. He's so in love with her. He just can't wait to be married to her. Uh, those days they used to have the, the bride in a veil. And, uh, and uh, the, 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 the result was that uh, Laban switched Rachel for Leah. Jacob wakes the next morning, and guess what? He finds he's married to Leah, not to Rachel. He's very upset, goes to Laban, and Laban, the scoundrel that he is, makes an excuse and says, look, tell you what, uh, you can marry, work for me for another seven years, and what you, you can marry Leah right now, but you, you still have to work for me for another seven years. Jacob agrees, but I went quickly over one little detail, which is that Laban said, First of all, finish celebrating the week of Rachel, and then you can marry Leah. So in other words, if Jacob married Rachel on Tuesday, and the Bible doesn't disclose that detail, but if he did marry Jacob on a Tuesday, if Jacob married Rachel on a Tuesday, he couldn't have married Leah on Wednesday because 
each wedding has a week of celebration and you don't interfere. In other words, Rachel has a week for her wedding and then Leah will have a wedding and it'll be her wedding. That's exactly what they did. But um, from that, we understand that even a, a, a massive transition like a marriage, and, and remember, it is a big transition because until relatively recently, with the distortion of uh, morality as we've always known it, uh, for both the groom and the bride, the marriage was their very first uh, occasion of physical intimacy. This was the very first time they were with somebody. And as you can, I mean, that's, that's a big thing. That's a very big thing. And meanwhile, you know, you're, uh, you, you, you're getting used to this idea of uh, sharing a bathroom with somebody and waking up with somebody and, uh, and working out the details of, of family complexities together. Uh, your, your parents, my parents, oh, I mean, not surprisingly, Ancient Jewish wisdom says, you know what? Human beings don't do well with step functions. We do much better with gradual changes. And so here you are, flung into a wedding. This is a massive reordering of your life. Don't go to work the next day as if everything is normal. Make it a week-long celebration so that you have an opportunity to slide down gradually from the, I'm going to say from the high, but it's a stressful high of getting married. And anybody who's got married knows that even the period leading up to it is stressful with decisions and uh, and all kinds of, uh, uh, <laughs> let's just say, family tensions, very, very normal, although uh, um, Mrs. Lappin and I have been blessed that uh, our children, those of our children who have married, uh, have married into absolutely splendid families and uh, and um, they're, they're people that are much nicer than we deserve but uh, at any rate that that's the pattern for marriage but as the Holmes scale tells us loss of a parent loss of somebody is uh, very close to that it's, it's a little bit more stressful very very similar so you wouldn't be surprised if I tell you we have a similar way of dealing with that what am I talking about why don't I tell you just as soon as we come back in just a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. The ultimate goal here is an agenda. It, it is Marxist. It is Leninist. It is anarchist. It is nihilist. It is anti-Christian. It is anti-American. It is anti-constitutional. And so few people recognize this until it's almost too late to do anything. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back again, dedicated to revealing how the world really works. And thank you for being with me. It's uh, an enormous inspiration to know how many of you are listening. I really do appreciate that. And uh, I'm teaching about uh, spiritual and physical, pointing out that uh, while everybody is aware of the physical parts of life, uh, it's, it's a lot harder to familiarize ourselves with the spiritual parts of life. And the truth is that they are every bit as important, seriously, 
you know, just as we need uh, roads and cars and air and uh, food and restaurants and all the other things that we use in our daily life, um, so it is that we also need to have access to the spiritual. We've, we've got to be able to understand that. And, uh, I mean, let me give you an example of how this can practically enhance your life. Here's a principle that springs from spiritual understanding. Look, our feelings are the spiritual part of us, right? Uh, things we do, our actions, a lot of that is mostly physical. But our feelings are deep within us, and they cannot be measured by anything. They, they don't belong in a laboratory. My chimpanzee doesn't understand them. They're spiritual things. But uh, to suppose that people's feelings are less important than the facts... Um, you'd have to be a man never married. You'd have to be a man who's never lived with a woman uh, to know that feelings are every bit as important as facts. And, uh, you know, it's. I, I, I do remember once that um, uh, I um, inadvertently, the, I, I was smoking indoors, and uh, I, my cigar had a lengthy piece of ash on it, and I thought it would survive another few minutes until I was going to get up off my chair and go nearer an ashtray. Well, it didn't. Uh, the piece of ash fell off. And I should, I should mention, by the way, just so you know, um, my wife was really awfully tolerant and kind in, in allowing me to, to smoke indoors. I did install a high-power uh, air cleaning system, an ionizing system, uh, which uh, attached... I think it was teensy little ozone uh, molecules to the uh, to the particles of ash, helping to sort of bring them out of the air. At any rate, it helped a little bit, but uh, but at any rate, I, I did smoke, and uh, the piece of cigar ash fell off the end of my cigar down onto the carpet, and uh, my wife immediately dashed off to to get the portable battery operated rechargeable vacuum cleaner and uh, while she was uh, sucking up the ash and uh, getting rid of it she said you always do that you know and you you just always do that well i was relatively newly married still at that point and so in my foolishness and ignorance i started doing a mental calculation now my wife said i always do that and i smoke Round about, you know, what, two or three cigars a week. And if I always do that, there'd be this. So eventually I said, well, you know, Susan, if, if I always did that, uh, it would turn out that there would be a pile of 18 pounds of cigar ash um, on the floor by now. Or it would mean you've swept up 18 pounds of cigar. You know, and I don't think that's likely. So your statement that I always do that, she burst into tears. She just burst into tears. And it took me hours to console her. Because the answer to that situation was not a factual rebuttal. The response, the correct response to that situation on my part, would far better have been an empathy, showing that I understood her feelings. That she tried and worked hard to keep our home clean. And by dropping an ash off the end of my cigar, which seemed such a careless and thoughtless gesture, I indicated what small value I placed on the kind of home that she created. And all I needed to do was express understanding of all of that. 
I needed to address this on a feeling spiritual level. And I went and addressed it on a factual, physical level. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And so it is with um, uh, negotiations in business as well. Very often, very often, what if, if I am unhappy at work, very often it's not because I have to have a raise, and it's not necessarily because I, I've got to be moved to an office with a window, but maybe I just want to be recognized. Maybe I just want to be appreciated. Appreciation is a very basic need we have, but it's a spiritual need. And if I have, as a supervisor, an individual incapable of understanding the spiritual, supervisor who's so completely wrapped up in the exclusivity of the physical reality that he only knows one way to respond to my unhappiness and my dissatisfaction, and that's to say, well, don't think we can give you a raise. We're not giving out any raises this year. So, And that just makes me feel worse than ever. Another supervisor could have asked me to come into his office, sat me down and said, look, you're worth more than we're paying you. I'm going to tell you that right away. You are. Uh, at the moment, we're not able to make good on that. But I don't want you for a moment to think that we don't appreciate what you do here. My job here wouldn't be possible without you, and I know that, and I want you to know that as well. And I'm just giving you an example, right? At the end of the day, nothing material changed hands. He didn't give me more money, didn't give me an office with a window. Nothing material happened. But I feel totally different, and my the department in which I work will operate a little more smoothly now because I am a happy team member, not a resentful and unhappy one. There are so many instances in life where a full and comprehensive understanding of the spiritual reality is going to help you. It's going to enable you to function more effectively uh, at uh, in family, friends, and yes, even in your financial areas as well. And I was indicating before how it was that, uh, that um, it is possible to be stressed on a spiritual level, just as you can be stressed on a physical level, right? Being forced to race for a bus or pick up something very heavy and you're not accustomed to doing any of those things, that, that's not good for your body. In the same way, uh, spiritual stress can be harmful to you as well. I gave as an example the happy spiritual stress of a wedding and how it is that uh, biblical wisdom indicates that we ought to spend a week on a wedding. And by the way, I should mention that uh, for that reason, we don't do uh, honeymoons right away. In, um, in, in, a, in a biblical style, uh, we stay around. The young couple stays around for a week, for the full week of celebration, to allow family and friends to extend the celebration for the entire week. And what this does is it begins to cement relationships between the young couple and the people who will be part of their lives going forward. You see what I mean? You know how it is uh, in a divorce, right? I mean, how how many times are you successful staying friends with both a husband and wife who divorced? Almost unknown. It never happens. It's impossible. You've got to take sides. And, and you know how painful it is and how disruptive. Uh, if, if a key couple in a club or an organization or a social group divorce, it shatters the entire social makeup there because all of a sudden uh, people who are all friends together, now one of them is on their wife's side, one of them is on their husband's side, and it's all very painful and very, very disruptive. Well, in a, in a positive way, the reverse happens when people get married. 
right? Uh, somebody's friendly with Jack and somebody else is friendly with Jill. And all of a sudden, Jack and Jill are married. And so you're now friendly with both. And by the way, people often ask me, and maybe we'll devote a podcast to this in the future. People often ask me, um, is it okay for me to, as a married person, male or female, I'm a woman or a man, can I have a platonic friend of the opposite gender, even though I'm married? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Uh, if you're a guy and uh, you still take phone calls from um, a girlfriend you used to know before you got married, your wife has every right to be upset about that, even though she can't put it in words because it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. She's not saying she's worried you're going to go off and commit adultery. There's a feeling involved. She's not comfortable. She's absolutely right. And and similarly, uh, ladies, uh, you retain a uh, some kind of friendly relationship with a guy, either someone you knew before you were married or uh, – or, uh, or maybe it's somebody from work and you keep you saying to your husband, it's just a work-related thing. No, work-related things don't take place in bars uh, on the way home after work. So, um, no, that, that, that's not right. So Jack and Jill are now married, and all of a sudden, somebody who was friendly with Jill is now friendly with Jack and Jill, and somebody who was friendly with Jack is now friendly with Jack and his wife. And people who can't handle that, uh, you know, life moves on. That very often happens. Uh, people get married, and sometimes they do lose the friends they had before. It does happen, unfortunately. It's just one of those things, and um, and it's very understandable. But what 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 we are saying is that when a couple gets married, give your friends and family an opportunity to get used to you as a couple. And so don't rush off to Acapulco or Cancun right away. Stick around for a week. And, yes, have a party every night for a week. You won't be sorry. And what happens is that uh, it cements the relationships within this new little world. There's this new married couple, and there are all kinds of new ways of relating to them, and people are getting used to it. It's family of her family, his family, all getting to know one another. And so instead of just at the wedding where everything's frantic, busy, and joyful and exciting, um, a, a leisurely dinner party two days after the wedding, three days after the wedding, um, something for your, for your work associates and so on. It's, it's really terrific. Anyways, um, I pointed out that the Holmes – uh, scale of stress applies almost the same uh, value to getting married as it does to losing a parent. And uh, and so it's not a surprise that ancient Jewish wisdom says that whatever you do to help cope with the stress of a happy event is exactly what you do to help cope with the stress from, sadly, an unhappy event. And uh, the quote is from the book of Amos, uh, Amos was one of the prophets, and uh, chapter 8 of Amos, verse 10, says, I will turn your joyful days into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Uh, what, is, what is the Lord saying there? And ancient Jewish wisdom explains that quite apart from the prophetic impact that Amos was highlighting, which is that uh, when things go wrong for a society and God begins to uh, be disapproving, uh, all the things that are wonderful and joyful and exciting and good about that culture uh, can very quickly and easily turn into uh, mourning and lamentation. 
But uh, on a longer term and on a, on a more general level, what that verse is saying is that there is a parallel between joy and happiness and mourning. There's a parallel between songs of happiness and songs of lamentation. And so whatever is true in, in a measurable sense for one is true for the other. So not surprisingly, uh, what we do is we do a full week of mourning after somebody loses somebody. How is that carried out? Uh, people uh, stay home. You don't go to work. You don't go anywhere. People don't even people who worship every day in synagogue don't even do that. They they bring the synagogue service to the mourner's house, and uh, that's that's what they do. So the mourner doesn't have to leave his home for an entire week, and during that time, uh, his friends and family come and visit, and we also always try and arrange it that family members go through this week of mourning together. This week of mourning, by the way, is called Shiva which in Hebrew is the word for seven, because it's a seven-day process. And, um, and so uh, what, what happens is when you visit a family sitting shiva, maybe they lost the mother, you'll find the, the dad sitting there in mourning with his children, and they're all together, and, and you visit, and, uh, and, and you let them talk about their memories and their experiences. And uh, in that way, you, you try and help the mourners return to normality because we're not crying for the deceased they're safely in the arms of the lord we're crying for ourselves having to restructure our lives in a an entirely different way a way that we're not accustomed to um if you'd like to hear uh, what happened when my siblings and i lost our dad and and what happened when we lost our mom uh I'll tell you that just as soon as we get back. So stay tuned. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on the Blaze. Be back with you in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Not religious Muslims, right? They can dress women as beekeepers. They can not bake cakes for gays. They can say gays are going into the hellfire. Religious Muslims can say whatever they want because they're necessary for the left because of the ethnic politics and the uh, race discussions that go on, as well as as a cudgel against Judeo-Christian culture, Western civilization, and all the rest of it. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and you are listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on the Blaze, and I'm absolutely delighted to be there, and I'm delighted that you are there too. So thanks for listening, and thanks for allowing me the inestimable privilege of reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And those things that never change almost always have a spiritual dimension. Because one of the big differences between the physical and the spiritual is that physical things have an expiration date. Spiritual things do not. So, for instance, a violin has an expiration date. Although it's, it's wonderful to listen to a, uh, a magnificent violin built by the master violin maker Stradivarius in the 17th century in Cremona in Italy, there's not a lot of them around. Now, how many violins did they have in the 1600s? There must have been thousands and thousands. Very few of them survive. 
because by and large, physical things do not last forever. They just don't. But how about the sound you make with a violin? How about a tune? How long does a tune last? Oh, a tune lasts forever. You can't, you can't make a tune vanish. And that's one of the big differences between physical and spiritual. A body, like a violin, doesn't last forever. A soul, like a tune, does. It's a very big difference. And so, always helpful, I think, to take into account the spiritual when we're making plans, when we're making calculations, uh, when we're deciding how to react to a situation or we're even deciding how to present a set of circumstances. Uh, when, you're, when you have to tell people something, sometimes it's, it's bad news. Sometimes in a, in a corporate environment, you have to share news with your team members that uh, is not good news. There are ways to do that that are not just physical but spiritual as well. There are ways to do it that make it better, that, work, that take into account people's spiritual needs as well as their physical needs. And so understanding and knowing these things really is an enormous asset in every part of your life, your financial life, your social life, your, your family life. And, and that brings me back to my family because uh, I was talking a little bit earlier in the podcast about uh, people who, who, for misguided reasons, decide to have only one child. Uh, you know, I almost think you kind of have no children in a sense. Uh, and again, people for medical reasons have no option, or people who, who lived in under repressive and brutal regimes that allowed no more than one child. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about people um, who uh, polished their... Uh, credentials of modern social liberal virtue by boasting to their friends of, oh, we've only had one child. We're only going to have one child. We're never going to have more than one child. Why? Uh, because to bring more children into this world is a crime. To bring more children into an overcrowded, polluted world is wrong. We want to watch our family's carbon footprint, and we don't want to impose on Mother Earth a greater burden than she can safely sustain. No, one child is all, well, okay, it's all, it's all very nice, but I'll tell you this one time, and, and you know, there'll be many, many times that, that one child will, um, will, will not be happy that he or she doesn't have a sibling, because siblings are wonderful, can be wonderful, should be wonderful, things go wrong, they do, but siblings should be wonderful. And uh, th But there's a bigger time. There's a bigger time when that single child won't thank you. And uh, that is when it's time to mourn you, when it's time to bid you goodbye. Uh, that single child feels like the loneliest human being on the planet. That single child just feels utterly and completely isolated. And um, as a rabbi, I have uh, counseled people i've been together with people in in this kind of situation uh where it's it's just one child and uh some of those situations the mother or the father or both came from big families and that was a big help because the single child had uncles and aunts and cousins and it was a tremendous help but uh more often than not in the situations in which i've been involved the single child um, has not had a uh, panoply of uncles and aunts and cousins. Some, sometimes they're not, they, ju they just aren't any. Sometimes they live far away. But um, when it's siblings, people get together. 
and when it's when it's times of joy and times of sadness, people get together. And I am one of four siblings. Um, so uh, I have two brothers and a sister. They're three boys and a girl my parents had. And um, the, the time eventually came, and it was it, it, it's always a shock when it happens. It doesn't matter how expected it might be. Uh, but it was it was a shock. It it was a massive emotional and 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 spiritual and mental shock. Um, I I was in Los Angeles. My father passed away in San Jose, California, and um, we uh, we we gathered. Uh, I I immediately went to uh, to his home where my mom was, and uh, and I do bel- I think that I think that was all. I'm trying to remember. And, um, you know, we immediately st- started setting about making funeral arrangements. We, I remember we couldn't, like, we couldn't even look at each other. Yeah, we didn't, you know, it's, it's such a difficult time. And um, we uh, decided, we made arrangements for my father to be buried in Jerusalem, as was his uh, hope and wish. And, um, and as soon as we did that, we notified um, my uh, brother uh, and my sister, um, who who were uh, out of the country, and another brother uh, who was in the country, and everybody uh, immediately made plans to meet in Jerusalem. It was only a, a day later that uh, we were on a uh, on an airplane uh, heading to Jerusalem, and the coffin carrying my father was in the hold of the aircraft, um, and uh, and it was, as a matter of fact, by the way. Uh, many, many Al Al flights. Al Al is the Israel National Airline. Many of those flights do um, do carry coffins because m- my father was not alone in a wish to be buried in Jerusalem. It's very, very common uh, among religious Jews. And so uh, I'd say it's probably rare for an Al Al flight into Israel not to be carrying uh, at least one coffin in its hold. And um, we, um, we arrived and the... The, the the goal is to bury as rapidly as possible to return the body to the earth as quickly as possible and that's uh, that's what we did <clears throat> the the funeral was almost immediately after arriving in Israel it was all you know we, we're all in this in this um, state of of shock really and, and you're sort of not sure exactly how you're even functioning but um, right after the burial uh, we um, went to uh, the hotel we were all staying at in Jerusalem, and um, the hotel we had made arrangements with for uh, to have a uh, a special room available in which we would sit shiver. So we we were going to stay in that hotel for the week, not move out of the hotel, which indeed we we it's exactly what we did. Uh, this hotel in Jerusalem had um, services every morning and every uh, evening, so we were able to attend services without leaving the hotel. And um, and so that's you know we got up in the morning, went to service, and then went to this small like think of a small conference room that was set up with with chairs and a few tables and lots of lots of chairs chairs special chairs for us, for my siblings and my mother and uh, chairs for the visitors and um, and the word got around very quickly that the the great uh, Rabbi Abram Lappin had passed away and he had many many students and and relatives in Israel and the uh, the visitors began. And obviously, this was my first experience of of being on the receiving end of sitting shiver, and um, 
it was an amazing experience. I, I know this is going to sound strange when I say it, but it was an uplifting and joyful experience. Um, I must tell you that um, the at, at times with my siblings, just there were times when there were no visitors and it was just the siblings. And we were being together and having a forced week of proximity just to recall our father and just to remember events. Well, I must tell you, there were times where the laughter among the four of us was so loud and so hilarious that somebody from the hotel management actually had to come by and ask us if we could tone it down a little bit, um, which, as you can imagine, just made us laugh all the more outrageously it was just it was just all and again i'm sure part of that was was stress and relief of stress but a good deal of it was just having company to go through this phase of life with being able to share it with siblings and with others and that is what many people experience in shiva uh, people come people you didn't even know were people who were friends with your father there were people who whom he helped. There were people whom he advised and consulted for. There were people for whom he arranged favors that we never even knew anything about. And people just came and poured out their stories. And, and we were able to ask questions and hear more about their interactions with our dad. And he began to um, uh, grow into a much more multidimensional person than he'd ever been in life in a funny sort of a way. For instance... Um, I never even knew. I don't know why he never told me this. I, if you know, I, it's one of the things I'll ask him one day. I have no idea. Turns out that um, one of his first uh, jobs as a young rabbi was working on Jewish-Christian relations. Well, my goodness, this is what I've devoted the majority of my career to. The organization I have the privilege of serving is the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, and we are devoted to helping to defend civilization by a collaboration of Jews and Christians working together using Judeo-Christian principles to sustain a civilization in peril and under attack. And uh, turns out, and I, and I discussed this with my father uh, when, when I began in this work many, many years back, uh, I, I spoke to him. Why didn't he ever say to me, uh, you know something that's very interesting, you should ask me about this. That was part of my career. I spent the first few years of my career in that. Strange. Never never did that. Never told me. I have no idea why. But I never would have known about it at all if it wasn't for that shiver period. And uh, and sure enough, a number of years went by and, um, and, and, and finally my mother passed away as well. And uh, and Again, the same thing. She passed away in the United States where, where she'd been living. She stayed on living in the same apartment in which she and my father had, had enjoyed. And we, we gathered, and once again we uh, planned to bury her alongside my father in, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and once again, you know, the, 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 same, the same thing uh, played out, exactly the same thing. We, uh, we flew to Jerusalem. We had this, this, the, the funeral um, late one evening, as the as the lights were twinkling uh, um, across the valley on the other hillside, and there was a short, somber ceremony, and uh, and she was returned to the earth from whence she came, and then we spent the next week together as siblings, and and once again, uh, relatives came by and people people we we didn't even know we became friendly with. There were even friends we we still have kept now. 
uh, as a result of people we actually got to know, whom we never even knew, people who didn't know us, but they came to pay their respects and to console us and to mourn with us, and at the same time uh, to telling us uh, stories and accounts of their interactions uh, with our mother. And uh, and that, that's that's exactly how that works. So that's the the process of uh, of mourning, and. Um, and I also want to uh, remind you, if I could, to make a note of my website. Would you do that? It's uh, youneedarabbi.com, or if you prefer, it's rabbidaniellappin.com. Both take you to the same place. And uh, at the website, you will find resources that cover many, many more areas of life uh, in far greater detail than we can possibly do on the podcast. Uh, you will find on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. So go ahead, visit there, and, uh, and uh, you may well find something that will be very useful to you. And if you do, uh, that would make me happy. And if you ever have a chance to communicate with me, well, the website's a way to do that as well because there's a Contact Us tab that uh, will enable you to shoot me an email that I'll get. And uh, if it's about value you found in any of our resources, as many of our emails are, I, I derive enormous encouragement and pleasure from that. So thank you to all of you who've already done that. And uh, you can also subscribe to our free weekly email called Thought Tools. And uh, that's also at the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. So go ahead and do that. Uh, right now, what we're going to do is quick break. And then uh, coming back, let us take a look at where we are first informed about spiritual and physical, and how does this work when it comes to something as mundane as, shall we say, starting a business? I'm going to show you all of that as soon as we get back. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stew. Chlorine is not historically considered a chemical weapon. Remember that, first No, of you all. use it in your pool. You do. Shut up. You do. You use it in your pool. Mm. How chemical can it be? <laughs> I mean, it's, and we found out it's not even what gives you red eyes when you go and uh, open your eyes underwater. Oh, really? What is it? Pee. What? Pee. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello again. This is your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin on the Blaze. Delighted to be here and encouraged and inspired by you being right there. And uh, don't forget, love to hear from you. And if, if you have thoughts on this podcast... Um, if you'd like to ask questions you'd like answered on the podcast, if you'd like me to know anything at all that, that ought to be included, whatever's on your mind, please go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, there's a Contact Us tab there, which is an easy way to shoot me an email. And uh, I can assure you that although I, I do respond to uh, perhaps maybe 30% of the emails I get, uh, I do read them all, and... Um, and, and very often incorporate um, some of those things into broadcasts and into podcasts. So make a note of the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, that way you'll be able to be in touch with me, which, which I'd appreciate. And so here we are working on clarifying spiritual and physical, and the implications are very real. 
because when you stop to think about it for a moment, when you apply for a job, when anybody applies for a job, are you going to likely be hired because of your physical characteristics or because of your spiritual characteristics? And uh, I would submit to you with complete certainty that in the overwhelming majority of cases, you are going to be hired because of your spiritual abilities, not your physical ones. Now, exceptions might be if you're looking for a job as a swimsuit model. Now, uh, that reminds me, of course, of, of a time a few years ago where I applied for a job as a swimsuit model and uh, was turned down, which just really served to affirm for me that anti-Semitism is alive and well. But uh, for most people, applying for a job not as a swimsuit model means that it's not your physical characteristics, but your spiritual. Um, you are being hired not because of your height or your gender or because of the color of your hair or, in my case, the utter absence of hair. No, you're not being hired for any of those things. It's very different, of course, when somebody... Uh, buys a an animal. You buy a dog, you want a dog with specific physical characteristics. You buy a cow. If I want a Friesland cow, I don't want a Hereford. I want a Friesland. And, uh, and they're going to look differently. If I want a black one, a black and white one, that's one thing. If I want a brown one, that's another thing altogether. When we buy animals, we are buying purely physical characteristics. When we buy objects, we're obviously only buying physical characteristics. But when we build relationships with people it is specifically in a work environment it is for spiritual characteristics you are being hired because of how you present yourself you're being hired because you have conveyed uh, a an impression of competence and skill in the area in which your future employer needs help now having that competence and that skill is in and of itself partially spiritual but communicating it is entirely spiritual and it's a wonderful thing to be able to effectively communicate that I don't think it is too much to say that uh, overwhelmingly the majority of us uh, are in sales and we're selling all the time you're selling yourself you're selling your abilities you're selling your time you're selling your skills whatever it is um, some of the time you're selling your ideas, you're selling your projects, your concepts. These are the things we're all doing. Communication is an essential part of why you are hired. My friends, communication is 100% spiritual. Admittedly, making molecules of air bounce around by passing air up through our larynx and pumping it out from our chest that part of it is physical but that those vibrating air molecules are sculpted into sentences and formed into words with meaning all of that is spiritual the amount of it which takes place in the throat is minute the overwhelming majority of it takes place in the mind in the heart and in the soul and so speech the ability to communicate and the ability to talk is a spiritual ability and fortunately one which can be enhanced and developed and improved uh, with just a little bit of effort. 
People sometimes say, you know, I just don't have the gift of the gab. No, that's not true. That's a terrible thing to say. There is absolutely no reason why you cannot dramatically improve your ability to articulate, dramatically extend your vocabulary, dramatically improve your ability to communicate. And you should. These are good things. And uh, I'll tell you one of the biggest um, obstacles and the most profound handicaps to effective communication, and that is television. One of the very best tools for enhancing communication, reading, reading good books. And obviously television consumes a great deal of time and gives you absolutely no additional ability to communicate. We'll talk about that more sometime, but, uh, but for now you may count on that with utter certainty that television actually costs you communicative ability it doesn't help not one little bit and so when you're being hired it's for your communicative ability it's for skills how about for your resourcefulness resourcefulness well that's a spiritual capacity the idea of find saying well if the answer isn't here it must be there that's all spiritual how's about the ability of sticking to something without giving up how about the ability of taking setback and disappointment in your stride and keeping on moving how about that? All spiritual. And ancient Jewish wisdom is filled with technology of how to employ spiritual strategies to improve these areas. Very important. So, for instance, one of the things that uh, can handicap us all is sadness, misery, depression. We get just overwhelmed and down. And it, it can become terrible, become paralytic, it can stop you doing things, it can lose you friends and relationships, it's horrible. Well, one of the surest and first things to do is to recognize that all of this is a spiritual uh, malady, sadness, sorrow, misery, being subject to moodiness and saying to yourself, I'm in a bad mood. No. There's a way to solve that. There's a way to get out of that bad mood. There's a way to get better. And there's spiritual strategies for doing that. Simple but very successful spiritual strategies that achieve that. And uh, I cover those extensively in, in some of the resources on my website as well as in the thought tools, the weekly email that I send out free. So make sure you visit rabbidaniellappin.com and take a look at that. But um, But the basic... The basic idea is that when you take a position, it's because you are hired on account of mostly spiritual attributes. Now, it is true that uh, by a small amount, not significant, and uh, after a period of time it, it evens out, but there is a period where uh, tall, good-looking men do make more than average-looking guys. And uh, and you've seen them. You've seen those guys. They've just got the right. They they're six foot one, six foot two. Uh, they've just got the right uh, symmetrical jaw. And yes, they 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 do have a slight advantage for a period, uh, early early career period, slight advantage. Uh, very good looking women, definite definite advantage, no question about it. But the overwhelming majority of us occupying that safe, comfortable position in the middle of the bell curve. We can do just fine as long as we are in possession of the spiritual tools and strategies that enable us to cope 
and cure and progress and and sculpt and process the spiritual aspects of our lives to maximum benefit. Because, I mean, everybody knows how to deal with the physical aspects of life. Everybody understands that. People talk about how to lose weight, how to eat healthy. Yeah, we know all that. But what is so unknown and so important because it's, it's responsible for fully half and probably more of your well-being, spiritual. When I say your well-being, I mean that very literally, of course. But you've all heard of holistic health, haven't you? Um, you've all heard of the extent to which the condition of our soul, the condition of our heart and mind impact the state of our body? Sure, absolutely. Uh, loneliness costs health. A tendency towards allowing sadness and depression to dominate, yes, health problems. All of these things can be and should be dealt with on a spiritual level because they're spiritual problems. Where does all this show up in the first place? Where, where, does, it, uh, where, does, it, where does it originally occur? And the answer is, so important is this, that in God's message to mankind, it actually occurs in the very first sentence. That's right. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created heaven and earth. Now, you barely need me to tell you that that is a little of an unconventional formulation, because ordinarily... If uh, you or I were writing that, I think we'd probably write something, and certainly it would be more poetic, wouldn't it, to say something like, uh, in the beginning God created everything. Or, to start with, there was nothing. The Lord put it all there. In the beginning, God created the universe and all it contains. Well, that would be good. But you see, all of those formulations could leave you with the idea that all that he created was physical. In the beginning, there was nothing, and then God created the universe. Yeah, the stars and the moon and the dust and the clouds and the atmosphere and the gold and the iron and the silicon in the earth's core. Yeah, and that's what he created. But wait, that's not all he created. He created the spiritual as well. And that's what heaven and earth mean. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. means that in the beginning... God created all that is material. The hev- excuse me. Um, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and treating it in that order. In the beginning, God created all that falls under the spiritual umbrella, and earth, all that falls under the physical umbrella, and that's to tell humanity right off the bat that the world in which we live is a composite of heaven and earth. It's a composite of spiritual and physical. And in order to live here effectively, you need to be able to function within both of those matrices. And it's important, I think, also to understand that the sequence is important. It doesn't say in the beginning God created earth and heaven. In the beginning God created heaven and earth. First the spiritual and then the physical. What does that mean? Well, it means that the spiritual has to precede the physical. Now, in practical terms, in child raising, what that means is that before you even start teaching the child about physical things, you have to start teaching the child about spiritual things. The spiritual has to precede the physical. And you teach the child about God, you teach the child about honoring parents. Now that's a spiritual thing 
because you would have thought that the ordinary biological imperative is for parents to honor children. I mean, after all, right? parents give up their lives to save their children if they have to think parents honor children. Biologically, that would be the case. But spiritually, it's children that have to honor parents. And you're doing your child a disservice if you deprive them of that information. Sometimes parents feel uncomfortable. You feel almost as if you're some kind of a buffoon uh, extracting honor and respect from your child, demanding honor and respect from your child. Ah, this is why children are raised by a mother and a father. You're quite right. It does come across non-productively. If a man says to his child, stand up when I walk into the room, or uh, don't sit in my chair at the dining room table, that's uniquely my chair, that's part of respecting your father, it's not great. But guess what? If your wife says that, that's an entirely different story. And if a child speaks disrespectfully to its mother, and the father is the one who steps in and says, I don't want you to ever, ever speak to your mother like that again. I don't think you understand what a remarkable woman your mother is. The woman I married is a very special person. I won't have you speaking to your mother like that. Trust me, you'd only have to say that once to a child, and you will have imparted the spiritual power that will remain a part of that child's soul forever. But unfortunately, that is just something that is not so well understood in society. And how does it impact business and biology? Well, let me explain that in just a moment. Coming right back. Don't go away. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Remember that despite feeling at times in the past that we couldn't overcome our physical pain, that we actually did and we got through it, and that we can use those touchstones call upon that strength once again or to think of the strength of other people in situations in which we've watched other people rise above their physical challenges america wk saturdays 10 a.m to noon on the blaze radio network welcome back to rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network your rabbi on the blaze rabbi daniel lapin that's me and uh, here we are on spiritual and physical and uh, pointing out that the opening verse of the Bible, for a very good reason, speaks about heaven before earth. And in, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, not earth and heaven. Heaven and earth, spiritual heaven, spiritual and earth physical. And so to begin with, God created the entire spiritual matrix that holds it all together. And then he created the physical the atoms and the molecules that, uh, that are at the elemental level, all of matter. Uh, and by the way, uh, on that, forgive me, I think I may have misled you in the first podcast, uh, the first episode. Um, and by the way, if you haven't heard that, you should. But um, in the first one, a, uh, somebody wrote in to me, somebody sent me an email, uh, saying he thinks that I said that um, Ernest Rutherford, the great British Nobel-winning physicist, uh, in many ways the father of, of atomic physics, um, was an early 19th century uh, scientist. And if I did, I'm sorry. 
that is not correct. He, of course, was at the beginning of the 20th century. He died just before World War II. And uh, what he did, what, what the, the, the sort of big breakthrough that, that he brought the world was that uh, up till that point, um, the idea was that the basic building blocks of matter were, uh, were things that looked a little bit like blueberry muffins. They were uh, molecules that had within them uh, electrons dotted around like blueberries. And uh, it was Rutherford who, through some incredible experiments that he did with uh, inexpensive and basic equipment, uh, it was really rather remarkable. He was, he was quite a guy. Uh, born in New Zealand, by the way, um, he, um, uh, he realized the, the, the very first uh, true idea of what an atom looked like. And the idea that an atom, instead of looking like a, a, a blueberry muffin, was actually something which today we're familiar with because we've seen the, the imagery in logos and in advertisements so often, which is a central core known as the nucleus, and then electrons flying around in, in various orbits. And, and obviously that's a mathematical representation. It's not exactly what you'd see if you looked through a microscope, and um, because of physical limitations, you can't actually look through a regular microscope. So it becomes problematic. But uh, bottom line is uh, that's who Rutherford was, and that was a beginning of the understanding of matter. Now, here's what's so interesting. What, what Rutherford did point out, and I didn't discuss this in the first uh, podcast, is that the majority of the space of an atom is empty space. It's only the tiny nucleus in the middle, which is hard, impenetrable matter. The rest, which is just an, I mean, it's, it's, it's an essential part. It is the atom, but it's empty. And he, he did this essentially by um, firing uh, little electronic bullets, as it were, through sheets of gold foil. And he figured out that if, if in fact, atoms were all solid matter, like made up of things that looked like blueberry muffins, then if we shot, imagine a little marble at a wall made of blueberry muffins, it shouldn't get through. Or if you shot it very hard, maybe just a few would get through. And you could calculate how many should get through. And so he went ahead and did that. He didn't use blueberry muffins and uh, marbles, but uh, he used gold foil and electrons and protons. And he figured out what should have penetrated. And in fact, what did penetrate was ever so much more. And uh, experiment led to experiment, and it soon became evident that the majority of the space in material is empty, empty space. That is to say that the chair you're now sitting on, the bed you're lying on, the uh, floor you're walking on, is overwhelmingly empty, nothingness. And it's just held together by solid little fragments at distances from one another. And because of the tiny size, we're not aware of it. Everything merges into the solid surface of the table you're eating at or working at. But in reality, the space is actually far more than the solid. And the only reason I, I mention this is because I find it fascinating that even when we're dealing with the physical side of, of matter, there is so much of a spiritual nature there as well. Emptiness, and yet it's matter. Weird. 
uh, if you read some of the writings, which are which are hard, of Stephen Hawking, um, brief history of time, and some of the other writings that uh, that that man uh, came up with in in his study of physics, it's kind of interesting just how spiritual it all reads like, and so the interface between the two is not as uh, as as unreachable as as you might think. But uh, back to why the Bible begins with the words heaven and earth rather than earth and heaven. Spiritual must precede the physical. What do I mean by that? Well, think about this for a moment. Um, There are two aspects to the arrival of a baby in the world. There's the baby's conception and the baby's birth. Which would you say is more of a physical process and which is more of a spiritual process? Would you not agree that the actual birth of the baby is physical. It's amazing, and that's why people are always so excited when a baby is born, because it's like, here's eight pounds of screaming protoplasm that that wasn't here yesterday. And there it is. It's breathing and eating and looking. It wasn't here. It's eight pounds of matter that wasn't here yesterday. It's physical. It's arrived. You can feel it. You, in fact, one of the first things the doctors do when the baby's born is they measure it and weigh it. Exactly the things you do in a laboratory in order to understand the nature of physical matter. You weigh it. You measure it. And so sure enough, that baby is, is as physical as could be. It's, it's, it's matter. It's there. How about the conception? Now, there is a tiny little thing called a sperm, and there's a tiny little thing called an ovum, and they do come together and fertilize and so on the one hand yes there's a tiny little thing there but on the other hand is there any way of measuring the data and information that is embedded inside those two tiny 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 little pieces of matter how is it possible the density of information is far denser than the most sophisticated computer storage medium I mean, all the information on this child and on this child's children are embedded inside that tiny little sperm and that tiny little ovum. And that's why it is that we can see that conception is a heavily spiritual process. It's got a tiny, tiny little touch of physical, but overwhelmingly, the impact of what happens at conception is spiritual. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons that we use the word conceive for an idea and for a baby. Because babies, in a certain sense, although once they've gone through the physical process of birth, they're certainly material and physical, but at the early moments when the baby is formed, at the moment of conception, that is overwhelmingly spiritual. It's like 99.9% data. And then little by little, that data begins to shape itself into physical. The ideas really do matter. Ideas are what bring about realities and physical things. Let me give you another example of that, which is perhaps uh, also very close to home. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine uh, you and I are having lunch with a third individual. And the reason that we're there is because this individual uh, is known as an innovative guy and uh, he wants us to invest in his enterprise, what he's working on. And since you and I are always on the lookout for good opportunities, we're happy to 
we have to eat lunch anyway. May as well eat lunch with him. Can't waste too much time. And uh, we'll see what he has to offer. Well, we sit down with him, and this is what he begins to tell us. You know, after the niceties, we say, well, tell us about your enterprise. Tell us about your venture. You know what he says? He says, oh, you are going to want to get in on this right on the ground floor. This is really something. All right, tell us. Go on. Tell us. What is this? He says, well, okay. I got a factory. It's 40,000 square feet. I have 19 numerically controlled machine tools. Do you have any idea of what those machine tools can do? Right about this point, you and me, we're looking at each other out of the corners of our eyes saying, like, somehow he's not getting to the point yet, is he? And we uh, return our attention to our friend, and he says, uh, and I want you to know I've got a fleet of 12 delivery trucks. We are set. We are in such good shape. And you know how often it is that, uh, that people just have ideas? Well, I want you to know, I have the real thing. I've got the material. I've got the physical substance. Everything is there. I've got the factory. i got the tools. i got the delivery trucks. We're good to go. Now tell me, are you in or are you out? We look at each other in sheer consternation. Like, is this some sort of a joke? And we say to the guy, well... Um, but, uh, well, we're, we're, we're kind of would like to know, yeah, we, we hear you have a factory, and that's wonderful. You have machine tools, and you have delivery trucks. Um, could you tell us, like, what are the, where are the customers, and what are they buying from you? Like, what are you delivering? What are you making? What are you giving them? What is your business? And he says, picky, picky, picky. I mean, aren't you happy with what I've already told you? I mean, how much more do you expect me to lay out for you? I mean, this is just a lunch, you know. I would have thought I told you enough already for you to invest. And we say, well, we think this lunch is over. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. And we just say that to be polite because it wasn't really. And we take our leave. Off we go. And um, I say to you, by the way, we've got another lunch tomorrow with another guy. You groan and you say, oh, Rabbi Lappin, I can't believe it. Are we going to do this again, sit through another interminable lunch with somebody that w w it just doesn't work, makes no sense? I say, no, no, you know what? This one will be different. Come along. We come to lunch the next day. Same restaurant, same waiter. He says, oh, nice to see you back. You got another friend here this time? We say, yep. The guy starts talking and he says, well, I'm very pleased to meet you because uh, I have a terrific idea. And um, I think that this is something that's going to make a lot of money. It's going to be very successful. It's going to have a lot of customers. And I think you're going to want to get in. And uh, we say, okay. And we're weary now, very weary, because we, we had our experience yesterday. And, um, and we say to him, uh, well, uh, are you going to tell us now that you have a factory and delivery trucks? And he looked a little awkward, and the guy says, no. Uh, he says, I'm afraid not. I'm, I'm actually not quite up to the factory yet. Uh, I don't even know where, in which country we're going to manufacture. Does that mean you, you don't want to talk to me until I have a factory? What's our answer? No, no, no. No, please. No, no, please. Go ahead. Tell us the idea. Sorry to interrupt. And he starts off, and he lays out a problem. He says, uh, you know, here is the problem. Um, people love to connect with other people. People love to communicate with other people. And... Um, People aren't always available for a phone call. And so although I would love to be able to get 
notice that uh, my daughter arrived safely somewhere. If she calls me, I'm going to be in a meeting. It's not really going to be convenient. And so we've come up with an app, and it's such a, a great app that answers the, the question that's on everybody's lips that we decided to call it WhatsApp. And this is going to allow families to set up little groups where they can send little special text messages to each other. And work groups can set up little work groups. And that way, these little messages can come in and you can look at them at your convenience and you can even keep in touch with what your whole group is doing. And all of this takes place on your phone and um, and there's a revenue model that'll depend on uh, that uh, that it'll depend on having numbers of people as such that we don't even have to charge people. The app can be free. Well, tell me something. Does he have our attention or doesn't he? He does. Do we even ask him about the factory or where? The, no, because the spiritual precedes the physical. You try and sell me on an idea by just telling me about the physical. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not interested. But start me off on the spiritual, I'm with you. And this, my friends, is a very, very important principle. Uh, in launching whatever it is, whether you are trying to uh, get a, uh, a girl to go out with you, whether you're trying to persuade your, your new husband that, uh, it's, that it's time to have a baby, whether you're trying to hire somebody and uh, persuade them of the value of working for your firm, or whether you're looking for a job, in all of these cases, remembering that the spiritual must precede the physical will be incredibly valuable and incredibly useful to you. I want to thank you very much indeed. Visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Appreciate you being with me on this podcast and looking forward to uh, joining you on the next one here with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on The Blaze. God bless.